From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. President Trump has fired Mark Esper as Secretary of Defense. President Trump announced on Twitter Monday afternoon the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, Christopher Miller, will be acting secretary, not Deputy Secretary David Norquist. The appointment of the new Federal Chief Information Security Officer is official. NextGov reports a spokesperson for the Office of Management and Budget confirms Camilo Sandoval is the new federal CISO. Sandoval was acting CIO at the Department of Veterans Affairs for a time. He also worked at Treasury. A fix for retirement calculations for veterans could be coming from the Office of Personnel Management. A proposed rule from OPM would stop employees from having to pay deposits so they could count their service time toward their federal retirements. Federal Times reports the proposed rule comes from a bill Congress passed in 2018. The new General Services Administration small business contract, Polaris, includes the Defense Department's cybersecurity supply chain requirements. And it may not be the last contract that does. Roger Waldron's the president of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Roger, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming back on the program. Keith Nakasone of GSA, who you know well, was on the program on Sunday talking about this very issue. He said DOD is GSA's one of their biggest customers, if not their biggest, and so it makes sense to include this. You expect to see this a lot more, that the requirements of GSA's largest customers will be baked into these contracts? Uh, Francis, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. And uh, yes, I do. Uh, you know, DOD is uh, GSA's biggest customer, has been traditionally for as long as I can remember, as long as I've been in this market. And obviously, you know, the customer drives requirements, and this is a requirement that DOD has. You'll see it in this uh, contract, any future IT GWACs. Um, there'll be great sensitivity to addressing this concern. We've talked on this program in the past about the problems that GSA had with Alliant 2. What would you like to see them do with Polaris to get Polaris off to a, a good start, a better start than they saw with Alliant 2? Well, uh, first of all, Keith uh, and his team are, are doing the right things. They're out talking to industry, um, you know, doing listening sessions. They've put together a set of questions they're asking of uh, the small business community about how this should work. Um, so that listening sessions and that, that approach is obviously should benefit the final RFP and the, and the management of the source selection. Things I'd like to see, um, I'd, be, I'd like to see uh, the Section 876 of the FY 2019 NDAA included. That's the authority to award contracts at the contract level without having to evaluate price and leaving the price competition and best value competition at the task order level. You know, in that case, then you're focusing, which the GWACs, uh, both small business and large business GWACs traditionally do, is they focus on the, on identifying, you know, high high caliber uh, companies who can provide best value solutions for those contracts and you know not focusing on pricing leaving it to the task order level uh, would streamline the acquisition I think reduce the risk of protest and provide a, a very highly qualified pool of contractors you are it feels like you're the dozenth person who's been on this program recently saying I hope that section 876 becomes the way that business is done 
if that idea is so popular, and it's government and industry people saying this, if that idea is so popular, Roger, why is it taking so long to get here? Um, I, you could say it's the inertia of government. Uh, the, I, I, I'd rather look at it as some of the positive steps that have been <laughs> taken, uh, Francis. So for example, GSA's Astro procurement, which was focused on um, services around uh, drone technologies, that is using this authority. It's the first major IDIQ contract to utilize that authority on GSA's side. I think it provides a great opportunity for GSA to, you know, to, to see what works, how it works, you know, get lessons learned from it, and then apply it to Polaris, apply it to future ITG WACs as well, and apply, apply it to a future follow-on to Oasis. So if we see the application of something like 876 in, I mean, with all due respect, if I'm putting words in your mouth, please tell me, but it sounds like you're suggesting a, kind of a cookie-cutter approach, at least to that piece of all of these different contracts. If that's the case, are there other areas where GSA should basically, with all due respect to them, copy and paste some of these main principles so that these contracts start to, to look more uniform? Well, I think one of the, you know, it's hard to assess how, how that approach would work or not work. I guess, you know, I think lessons learned from what happened in Alliance Small Business, why uh, the follow-on, uh, why it didn't work out, why the evaluation was so problematic, trying to adjust based on that. Um, you know, the H-76 authority, I think, yes, it should be used widely. Um, and based on lessons learned from uh, Astro, um, you could look at it at other, at Polaris, you can look at applying it to the GSA schedules program. The authority provides for that moving forward. I think that will streamline the process significantly at the award level and, and also emphasize a focus on the technical capabilities and the quality of the companies that get on these contracts. What I'm getting at, we just have a little bit more than a minute left. What I'm getting at is, what can happen? Is this one step toward, you used the right word, I think, streamlining this process so that when something new comes along, companies and, and government both have some idea of what's about to come out, what's about to happen to them, rather than requiring a new listening tour each time and reformulating, uh, reformulation each time? Uh, yeah, I, I guess you know, that should be normal course of business, that you know, once you've adopted this approach, it becomes familiar to both government and industry. It'd be, you know, standard operating procedure, understanding how it works and that capability. The, the other aspect, and, I, and listening to your question made me think of something, aspect of Section 876 as well in the, in the GWAC and small business perspective. It will also, it's an enduring flexibility because it provides greater flexibility in contract administration and the ability to actually add new capabilities, new technologies to the contract because you're not going to be tied down by specific pricing. Um, so as long as you've drafted a scope that's broad and you can address pricing in contract administration as opposed to setting this benchmark at the contract level, I think that also provides flexibility to add additional capability over time. And again, lessons learned from this will become part of the standard operating procedure for agencies, especially, you know, Francis, technology, the momentum for, for advancing technology and capability, just, you know, the government has a hard time staying on top of that. This could be an opportunity to help the government through these uh, key contract vehicles, these strategic vehicles, to, to have greater flexibility to, to maintain that technological uh, access to the market.
Roger Waldron, great insight as always. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Francis. Great to be on the show. Up next, a transatlantic strategy for addressing China. Straight ahead on Government Matters, getting allies and partners on the same page to coordinate a response. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The national defense strategy lists China as a top concern. The Center for a New American Security has a new roadmap for cooperation with transatlantic allies and others to address China. Carissa Nietzsche is associate fellow for the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Carissa, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You have six principles that you're proposing in this work. We don't have time to talk about all six, but I would like to take you to number two of your concerns. First one's act with urgency. Number two is aim for coordinated, if not common, policies. With whom, Carissa? Yes, so the key message of this report is that we have to bring in our European partners. It's a precondition to be successful in a great power competition with China. So most of what we are recommending in this second principle about acting with coordinated, if not common policies. Look, recently Europe has mentioned that they might consider the Sinatra doctrine for this particular competition, that they might go at it alone. And this is no surprise. The United States has spent four years going it alone on the China competition. So what we're calling for here is to bring together the transatlantic partners to compete with China. And we might not agree on everything. Our policies might not be exactly the same, but they should definitely be coordinated with our European allies. Uh, I'll review the others that we don't have time to talk about for context, Carissa. Number three is strengthening U.S. and European competitiveness. Number four is engaging Europe at all levels. And uh, in brief, you refer to uh, EU, the individual member states, and NATO. And that takes us to number five, and that's expanding beyond the transatlantic players. There are a number of constructs that already exist. The five eyes concept has existed for a long time. Secretary Pompeo has recently talked about the quad that encompasses uh, the United States, Australia, uh, India, and Japan. Are those the kinds of constructs that you're talking about or something different? Sure. So some of these constructs will definitely be useful in a competition with China and in bringing in other partners besides our European allies through NATO. But we also think that there are certain areas, especially in multilateral export controls, where it might be a little more piecemeal. The types of partners that we'll want to work with might look a little bit different than some of the current um, constructs and forums that currently exist. So if we're looking at, you know, export controls on semiconductors, for instance, we'll need to bring in South Korea, we'll need to bring in Japan, and we'll need to bring in Taiwan, who's not currently part of the Vassanar arrangement. So um, we are looking at those more traditional forums, but we are looking at, you know, bringing in allies and partners issue by issue, depending on, you know, where we might need certain partners. One, uh, uh, one construct I've discussed on this program before is the possibility of establishing something like NATO in that part of the world that would encompass some of the countries that you just discussed and some others in, in that region. Is that something that you think might make sense, that, that you and your team believe might be effective? 
Uh, we recommend bringing some of those partners into NATO through perhaps a NATO, you know, Asia Pacific forum. So a lot of what we focus on is how can we utilize current U.S. and EU arrangements like NATO, like EU-U.S. dialogues, and how can we bring in third partners into those conversations. The sixth item that you uh, are recommending is remaining open to engagement with China. There are obviously always questions about China's sincerity and honesty regarding uh, diplomatic and, and national security issues. What does that engagement look like? Is that a trust but verify model? Or how exactly can we be confident if we were to reach some kind of agreement with China about anything? I think that the more partners we bring into this conversation, the more likely we are to succeed. So if we're bringing in um, G77 democracies, if we're really expanding the aperture here, there is a greater chance that we can take China to task and that we can be sure that they'll follow up and be good on their word. Um, for example, if we look to the World Intellectual Property Organization's recent contest for director general, we saw that it was a massive success to bring in G77 democracies to put forward a Singaporean candidate to contest the Chinese candidate. And I think that this is one example of when we widen the aperture and we bring in our other partners, that we can be more sure that we'll take China to task. But one thing that's critical here is we cannot have a single partner who has a different perspective on this. We have to all act in lockstep because just you know one crack is enough to provide a window or an opening for China. Um, because we have a moment left, I believe that the first principle that you and your colleagues propose is also appropriate as the last thing to discuss, and that is, as I mentioned, acting with urgency. There's no time to waste, is there, Carissa? There is absolutely no time to waste. The stakes are incredibly high. We're looking at a competition that is really a competition of two competing worldviews, and we will absolutely have to have our European partners on board in order to ensure that our shared democratic principles prevail. And I think even more so, um, we do need to act with urgency, but I do think that the time is now. The pandemic has really laid bare Beijing's global ambitions. We've seen the wolf warrior diplomacy. We've seen retaliatory trade acts. And we've also seen the ham-fisted mask diplomacy. And I think that now is the moment in time that we can work together with our European allies as their shared threat perception has begun to converge with ours. Carissa, thanks very much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Up next, building up a resilient supply chain. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to prepare better now for the next Black Swan event. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. The Defense Department is going all in on supply chain resiliency because of the coronavirus pandemic. Some of that work includes managing the risks of industrial modernization in the defense industrial base. Eric Lofgren is research fellow at the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University and writing about this at the acquisitiontalk.com blog. Eric, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the program. This is especially timely because of the possibility of a vaccine, as Pfizer has disclosed today. What is the main issue that you see in the resiliency of the supply chain as far as mobilizing against a black swan event? 
Right, and I think the black swan event there is is really the key issue that we have these um, events that have outsized impacts but are very low probabilities, right? So with the pandemic, coronavirus, it's kind of like a once in a hundred year uh, type event. And the same might be said of armed conflict, right? Uh, that we could have wars. Most of these you know, wars that we've seen have been kind of small scale or uh, proxy wars. And the threat that there could be a large war that requires its sustained mobilization is something that, of course, the military has been thinking about, but it's kind of on the, on the horizon of, we need to think about industrial mobilization and make industrial mobilization cool again, such that the supply chains are resilient enough that they can ramp up. And when we're looking at uh, coronavirus, right, like we're, they're still having trouble ramping up production of N95 masks. And that's a relatively simple product, right? And when we think about and translate that over to the Department of Defense, and what it might need to ramp up is a completely different ballgame. Your inference uh, at the end of this piece, it's time to make industrial mobilization cool again, infers that there was a time that it was cool in the past. I'm not sure I recall that, Eric, but uh, indeed, if that does need to happen, you suggest two things that need to happen. The first thing you write about is the government needs to invest in the upstream production process. How and where should they make those investments, Eric? Sure. Well, first, industrial mobilization was very cool after World War II and around the Korean War. And it wasn't until the 1960s that you started seeing a big drawdown in terms of critical material stockpiling and emphasis on, uh, you know, large capital and facility equipment uh, that the government often owned, but the contractors would operate. And so what and one of the, the big things that we can talk about in terms of preparing for these black swan events like a major war or a, a large pandemic is funding that upstream production process. And that is something that the Department of Defense hasn't really been doing because the tradition of the Department of Defense is to kind of, you know, define a weapon system end item, right? And then fund that end item. And then the supply chain through the tiers, the prime contractor will be kind of like the lead system integrator and develop its teaming arrangements down the, the supplier tiers. And the department doesn't really have too much insight into that supplier base. And so um, one of the things that the department can do to make itself a little bit more resilient potentially is to disaggregate some of these systems, right? Take a little bit more control over uh, the direction of subsystems and having families of prototypes of subsystems ready and different supplier bases. And, uh, you know, funding the upstream production processes. So it's not just what, like, you know, focusing on weapon systems end items. It's also enabling the tools that are necessary, like 3D printing or, added, or advanced manufacturing, right? And then artificial intelligence can go in, into that as well, reducing uh, errors in, in advanced manufacturing. Blockchain's an important part of that. And there's several other types of things, and we've seen that with uh, hypersonic vehicles, right? There was, in the 90s, the Air Force was asking for, you know, hypersonic wind tunnels to do a lot more of these tests. And that's an enabling tool. And that kind of got like shifted and it wasn't as much of a priority. And now, you know, 20, 30 years later, it becomes a big priority. And so funding the upstream production process um, through enabling tools will actually allow for more discovery, different types of ideas to, to arise. And it also uh, builds in, you know, 
excess capital such that you can surge and you're not just have this lean business efficiency where you have the minimum amount of capital required in order to service the, the end items that the, the department's asking for. I will trust your study of history uh, over my memory any day of the week, Eric, so touche to you. Um, the second item that you suggest is that the government needs to adopt commercial practices. Same question, how and where? Sure, yeah, so adopting commercial practices, of course, have, has been a huge issue over the past about five years, and even much further back, you know, into the 90s and before. So one, one thing that the, the government can do is just continue doing things that it has been doing, other transactions. We've seen a huge surge in other transactions for uh, COVID-19. There's been over $10 billion for the vaccine through Operation Warp Speed. Of that, it seems like um, seven to nine billion potentially is came through other transactions. But it's not just that, we have commercial solutions openings and a number of other types of ways that through the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulation, you can actually get a lot of things done pretty quickly. And one of the things about this is you can't like, in terms of when you have an emergency come around, you can't just flip a switch, a cultural switch for uh, the contracting community very easily and just say, okay, we, we focused on compliance, now we're focusing on speed. You almost have to say speed is kind of like our daily business and build that into the culture uh, right up front, such that when you turn the flip, the, flip the switch and you're now in emergency mode, you're not worried like what we're going to be seeing probably over the next coming months and years in terms of, well, where did the money go? Was there waste, fraud and abuse or just general confusion about what the policies were and not being able to take advantage of the authorities that uh, the department actually did have. Eric Lofgren, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on. You're welcome. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.